to the wall, behind and beyond. My name is Philip Allen Jones, and I am your host. Thank you for listening. We do these shows for you. Not only to bring you facts, but also a closer look into how mass incarceration plays a role into the breakdown of both families and society. Today we have our brother from Maryland, Secretary John B. King, who is a former Obama administration in the Education Department. This brother is a lifelong educator who founded Strong Future Maryland, a progressive advocacy organization, while at the same time being a professor at the University of Maryland at College Park. Thank you, Secretary King, for both your service and for being here with us tonight. With that being said, I'll let you introduce yourself further. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Philip. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be a part of this conversation. Uh, I'm a lifelong educator. I was a high school teacher and middle school principal. Uh, had the opportunity to work for President Obama as Secretary of Education. And my whole life is really about trying to expand education opportunity, particularly for students from low-income backgrounds and students of color. And it's really driven by my own experience. School made such a huge difference in my life when I was a kid. Um, when both my parents passed away when I was little, and I really want to try to do for other folks what teachers did for me. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to get started. I love that answer because I've always said that education is the key to success because you have to know and be educated in order to advance in life. And a lot of times people that forego education end up um, in places such as these. Um, unfortunately. Um, so my first question for you is, what does it mean to you to be possibly the first black Latin, and Latinx person elected to governor of Maryland? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm talking to you from Silver Spring, Maryland, which is where, where I live. It's about 25 miles from where my great grandfather was enslaved in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And I've had the opportunity over the last few years to visit the property where my great-grandfather was enslaved. It's actually owned by a family that are direct line descendants of the family that owned my family, that enslaved my family. And I've gotten to visit the property and gotten to know the folks um, well who own it. We've become friends. They've maintained the property just as it was in the 1800s. The main house is still the main house that was built in the 1700s. And the cabin that my great-grandfather lived in as an enslaved person with his family is still standing on the property. And so when I think about our history in Maryland, I think about how much our history has been shaped by slavery, by segregation, by redlining, by the inequities that we see in education, in our economy. And so much of that is all part of 400 years of anti-Blackness, of, of systemic racism. And to me, it's an incredible thing that in three generations, my family went from enslaved in that cabin to serving in the cabinet of the first Black president. And that was made possible because of opportunity that was given to us. And to me, the, the task of a governor is to make sure that there's opportunity for everybody. And we don't have that in Maryland today. So I think it's an important statement about progress uh, that we could have um, a, 
Black and Latino governor in, in Maryland. But what's more important is that as governor, I will do everything I can every day to make sure that opportunity is available to every Marylander, regardless of where they live or their race or their immigration status or how much money their family makes. Uh, I think it's our job in government to make sure everyone has access to opportunity. I was thinking as you were speaking, there was a whole lot, you know, especially the historical aspects of it. Um, that that place where you visited, where your grand great grandfather was a slave, um, that that should actually be your property if you believe in reparations. But that's another story. Um, what I was going to um, say is that Maryland is thirty percent African American or people of color, and. For there never to be a black governor in this state, especially with a major city like Baltimore, was majority black. In a state, majority Democrat. I can't imagine that there's never been a black governor. It just still blows my mind. And I've been there since, I, you know, I'm, I'm 50 now. But I just wanted to say that before I went to the next uh, question, because I don't want to get you off track on anything. That was just a comment after hearing what you said. Well, that, you're right. You're 100% right. You know, we've only had, as a country, we've only had two ever elected African-American governors, uh, Doug Wilder in Virginia and Deval Patrick in Massachusetts, and that's it. And, uh, you know, that tells you about how systemic racism has operated in our society. Mm -hmm. Man, that, that, that's even worse, because I didn't even know that. Only two in the whole country? <laughs> that's, that's, that's major. Uh, so why do you think Maryland finds it so hard to elect a person of color? Uh, many Democrats endorsed and voted for Governor Hogan against Ben Jealous. Why do you think that was? You know, I think Governor Hogan has really benefited from comparing, being compared to Donald Trump and comparing himself to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so people say, well, at least He's not like Donald Trump. At least he's a Republican, not like Donald Trump. And I think that helped him a lot in the in the 2018 election. Um, and it and people didn't scrutinize some of the policies that he put in place. So, for example, one of the first things he did when he became governor was he canceled the Red Line project, which was a transportation project that would have connected uh, some of the struggling neighborhoods in Baltimore City with where the jobs are. And there was a whole plan for mixed-use development at each of the stations, you know, with housing and retail and places for businesses to, to locate. There was a bill, almost a billion dollars that was coming from the Obama administration to support that project. And one of the first things he did was cancel that project. But people didn't look at those things because they saw him in contrast to Trump. So I think in this, in this campaign, we have to make sure, you know, he's term limited. We have to make sure that we lay out what are the policy differences between what um, Democrat will deliver and what Republicans have done. And we have to make sure that we don't let them get away with just saying, oh, well, we're not as bad as Donald Trump. That's, that shouldn't be the bar for being governor, that you're not, you know, obviously racist and you're not obviously trying to undermine democracy that that's good but that shouldn't be the standard well i thought it was that uh maryland democrats 
didn't want to see the status quo uh, be overturned. And so they knew what he brought. And they didn't know what, you know, the other candidate would have brought. And so they wanted to stick to something that they was comfortable with. Um, you know, but uh, that, that them days is over. And I think now uh, we have to really be present in the voter process and get out there and put our votes where it counts on people that's going to make a change in our state. Uh, which leads me to um, the third question, because you said, I read that you were saying that if it wasn't for those people around you who cared and gave you a second chance, um, who knows where you could have been. So my third question was, what comes to your mind when you think of a term such as second chance? Yeah. Well, you know, when I was a kid, um, you know, I mentioned that both my parents passed away, my mom when I was eight, my dad when I was 12. And in the period in between when it was just my dad and me, my dad was struggling with Alzheimer's. So home was incredibly difficult. I didn't know what my father would be like from one night to the next, some nights sad, some nights angry, some nights violent. And school was the one place that was safe and supportive. But when I got to high school, I was angry, angry at the world, angry at the things I went through as a kid, in some ways angry at my parents, even though that's, that may not make sense. I just, I resented how my life had been, which happens for a lot of teenagers. And so I, I got in a lot of trouble and so much trouble that I got kicked out of high school. And it would have been very easy for folks to give up on me, to, to look at me and say, well, here's a black Latino male family in crisis. What chance does he have? And that's what we do with so many young people in our society. We just give up on someone because of a mistake they made at 15, 16, 17. And I was very, very lucky that there were people in my life, a school counselor, teachers, some family members, mentors, who were willing to see me as more than the sum of my mistakes, who were willing to give me a second chance and willing to believe in me. And so when I think about second chances, I know I was lucky. The difference between me and, and other folks in my situation was luck, that there were those people that happened to be there who were willing to give me that second chance. And I think we need to build a society on second chances where we say, yeah, you may have made a mistake, but we're going to support you in taking your life in a different direction. And so for me, that means we have to think differently about our criminal justice system. We have to think differently about our education system. Um, we have to help people who are going through crises in their lives come through those crises and get to a better place. And to me, that's, that's again, part of the job of government. Thank you for that answer. Um, before I um, comment on something that you were saying, I think we have so many parallels in our story. And as you were speaking, I was listening and I was sitting here saying, unstable background for me, losing mm -hmm. both of my parents also at an early age, um, moving between family members in different places, um, having to start new schools. Um, and I was angry as an adolescent too about life circumstances, like you said. There was trauma, and I also got in trouble. But I started thinking, well, what was the difference maker? Because he was able to bounce back from that and still turn his life around. And I thought to myself, the difference maker was that you had 
positive reinforcement and you had people that believed in you and wouldn't allow you to fail. And that's the difference between a lot of young guys and youth in the inner city of Baltimore. Um, they don't have that. And so they fall by the wayside and then our community or society gives up on them. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and, and it, and it's, we lose so much talent. We lose so much potential because we haven't created a society where we ensure that young people have those mentors, those supports in their lives. And um, that that's, uh, takes me to the next question for you. Um, with the prison system being used to remove countless black men and women from their communities and leaving young children behind, are we not destroying future generations if these parents never return? I mean, there's no question. I mean, you, you know, in every community around the country, um, you can find kids who are experiencing tremendous pain because their parents have been taken from them through our policies of mass incarceration. And there are literally millions of young people whose lives have been harmed by misguided policies around mass incarceration. And I think the question for us as a society is knowing that we are causing that harm, what are we gonna do about it? Will we stop and rethink those policies around mass incarceration, rethink our criminal justice system, rethink what happens in our prison system to make sure that people have access to education and job training and addiction treatment and the supports that they need? And will we do more to make sure that if folks are incarcerated, they still have an opportunity to be connected to their families and that they're, they still have an opportunity to be involved in their kids' lives. And, and we, right now we just do not do a good job of that as a country. And it's, and it's, costing, um, it's costing kids the, the opportunity to have a relationship with their parents. Yes, for sure. Um, hopefully, uh, when you become governor, we can work together. I was just talking to uh, one of the team yesterday about I wanted to create a, a curriculum program that dealt with the emotional aspects of trauma at the same time while having big brother and big sister style um, uh, relationships with these children because it's the reinforcement that they need. Because if not, they turn out there to their peers and to the streets, and they do what they see others do. So we need somebody that they look up to that can be that intervening factor. So, um, yes, I definitely uh, like what you're saying with that. And um, we already know from the looks of Baltimore City what's going on. These little kids out here being uh, trained early um, mm -hmm. go out here, you know, and do adult bidding. That's right. Well, I want to work with you on those on those kinds of programs to, to intervene, because if we do that, we can help young people get on a path that's going to take them to good jobs and opportunities to contribute to, to the community. And if we don't do that, we end up with young people who feel hopeless and alone. And now, and now here's where we get to funded because you know the juvenile the juvenile homes and the places like hickey school and all that that takes a lot of funding if we take some of that money and put it into uh 
these uh, mentor programs and these um, uh, mental health uh, programs, consolidate them. We can save a lot more kids in the, in the juvenile um, justice system. We know that for a fact. But um, that's another story, too. So let me take you to the next question I have for you. Um, those of us who have been victims of harsh and unreasonable sentencing laws that are associated with the tough-on-crime policies are serving three and four decades in prison. I have personally served three decades for a non-fatal shooting when I was 19 years of age. Do you think that putting someone behind bars for this length of time is keeping society safe? No, these policies you know, of, of mass incarceration, tough on crime, they have done so much damage to our communities and deprived us of the talents of so many people. And we should be doing more to revise those policies, to give folks who have been incarcerated for these ridiculously long sentences the opportunity um, to show folks that they should be at home. We should be doing more to get rid of the, the sentencing laws that have produced these crazy outcomes. Uh, one, one good thing in Maryland that happened recently was uh, passing last session, last General Assembly session, a law to, to uh, give folks who were sentenced to life as juveniles the opportunity um, to have their sentences revisited because that that's just makes no sense to to take someone's life away from a based on a decision that they made at this early age so we we've really got to rethink how we approach criminal justice in this country you have 60 seconds remaining and there's that lady coming in so we'll use this opportunity to take a commercial a break and uh come back with secretary king Hey, everybody. Um, I just wanted to say, go to my website, Grant Parole to Philip, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-O-L-E-T-O-P-H-I-L-L-I-P.com. And scroll down, you'll see a link to donate for my legal fees. As I'm in need of a criminal attorney, uh, I also have another link to donate to my GoFundMe for mental health expenses. Thank everybody for your support. And thank everybody for the love they've been showing me. I appreciate it. And um, God willing, you know, it'll make a difference and I'll be home soon. We're back uh, to the conversation. This is a great conversation and uh, I'm quite sure a lot of people are going to appreciate it. Um, they have a, they started off with a, like a tough on, uh, uh, well, not a tough on poverty, but a, a war against poverty that turned into a war on crime. And I think a lot of the times these uh, these campaigns that they go on when things happen in our society and in our streets um, contribute to outcries for more time and lock them up and throw away the key type philosophies. And um, those are just outdated. And all across the country, they're coming progressively to figure out how do we correct, not just throw away the key and keep somebody in the warehouse until they are 80 years old and society has to pay all their taxes and pay the taxes to keep them alive and meditated and all that. So, you know, that's a long story. It's a lot involved. 
and I look forward to hearing some of your um your um, thoughts on those. But I got a question for you that you know I think it's uh, very pertinent to some of that what I was saying. Um, and that's the Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services. Um, how are we correcting if individuals are locked up and the keys are thrown away? Isn't the goal to restore justice, give these individuals a chance to make amends? so we can get them back to their families and communities? You're, you're absolutely right. And we are, we are not doing that as a country. We're not doing that in Maryland, honestly. And this is, this is something that I've worked on both when I was Secretary of Education and since. Um, one, of, one of the projects I was involved in as Secretary that, that I'm most proud of was trying to restore access to Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. Pell Grants are the main federal assistance for folks to pursue higher education. One of the terrible policies of the 90s and the 94 crime bill was a ban on access to Pell Grants for students who are incarcerated. It's terrible public policy. It's so much better if people can take advantage of educational programs and be able to come home with those additional skills and, and credentials. Uh, it's a terrible policy. We, we wanted to get Congress to reverse that policy in the Obama administration, but we couldn't get Congress to do it. So we created a pilot program called Second Chance Pell, where 65 colleges and universities were able to use Pell Grants uh, to support students who are incarcerated. Those programs are incredible. I've visited several of them. And we use those programs then to try to make the case for why we should change the law. And after I left the administration, uh, I've been running an education civil rights organization called the Education Trust, and we worked to get members of Congress, governors to come visit those programs, uh, to, to sit with students who had participated in educational programs while incarcerated, who could tell their story. And finally, last December, we got Congress to repeal that ban from the 94 crime bill, and now the education department is working on implementation of full restoration of access to Pell Grants for students who are incarcerated. And, and that's the kind of thing we should be doing. When folks are inside, they should be able to have the opportunity to get educational programming, their GED if they don't have it, attend college classes, get job training, get addiction treatment if they need that, get counseling if they need that, participate in mediation programs to work through issues that they might have with family members and, and, and others so that when they come home, we maximize the chances of success. We also need to put more resources into reentry programs so that when folks come home, they have a place to live, they have access to uh, decent jobs, uh, health insurance. We gotta help people make that transition home successfully. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I have my uh, reentry coach on the on the line listening in. I'm quite sure she's smiling to hear that. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, but uh, that crime bill in '94, I remember that. I came in in 1990. Um, I I got my TV in uh, 1992, and then I went on to go to uh, Baltimore City uh, Community College at the time. But then, at the middle of my studies the Pell Grant was taken away. And so they took me out of school and I had to wait years later, like now, 
to get back to college where I'm doing so successfully. I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity now, but before I was thinking, they saying I have too much time to go to school. And they don't think about the fact that if you do get out and you didn't get yourself a chance to be educated, then what will you do when you get out? And so that we should always be preparing people to return to the community, prepared so that they don't recidivate. They have the tools to be successful. You know what I'm saying? So a hundred percent. That's good to know. Uh, number, uh, my next uh, question I have for you is, do you believe in alternatives to prison as it relates to punishment versus rehabilitation? Yes. I mean, we should be doing a lot more with things like drug courts, where we try to get folks into treatment programs rather than relying on incarceration. We should be pursuing restorative justice programs so that folks can uh, try to make amends for things that have gone wrong rather than uh, sending folks to incarceration. We should be doing much more on the violence prevention side to try to break cycles of violence. You know, there are these very successful programs where folks will intervene um, with young people, with mentors, with folks who have themselves um, been involved in uh, gangs, for example, have gotten out and can help young people find their way out, those programs actually are much better investment many times than incarceration. So we've really got to shift our mindset to how do we help people succeed in the community rather than relying on incarceration as our response to um, addiction, to trauma, to um, mental health needs, um, we just we've got it backwards as a society mm -hmm. that's right um we can't incarcerate our way out of trauma addiction um and uh poverty or neglect we can't we can't incarcerate our way out of that and that's why maryland is seeing such a deficit now um with this prison budget um that they were talking about um fiscally trying to do away with that and i hope that happens also and when you're in there you can uh address that more um, you tweeted, we need to take bold steps to correct this injustice. Speaking of the disparities between the number of blacks in Maryland versus the incarceration percentage, um, we know that that's 30% in the state, African-American, and 70% in the prison system, which is a great disparity. Um, can you tell us the bold steps you are speaking of? Yeah, I mean, you know, it certainly starts with all the criminal justice reform that, I, that I've been talking about, right? Changing how we approach the criminal justice system. But I'd say it goes back even further than that. We have disparities in educational opportunity, disparities in access to higher education, disparities in access to jobs, disparities in access to health care. And we have to tackle those underlying inequities in our society if, if we really want to change this. Right. We have to change what happens in the criminal justice system, but we have to change what happens in society overall. If we made sure that every kid, regardless of race or income, got a high quality education, we'd have less of the challenges that we do around the criminal justice system. If we made sure that every teenager who wanted a summer job could get a summer job, we'd have less of the problems that we now are dealing with in the criminal justice system. If we made sure that every young person had a mentor, someone in their, some adult in their life 
who was helping them get on the right path, we'd have less of the challenges that we're dealing with in the criminal justice system. So we have to do criminal justice reform, we have to do policing reform, but even more than that, we have to do societal reform to shift our mindset towards helping everyone be successful uh, rather than using incarceration to deal with all our challenges in society. Absolutely, and we all can do our part. Um, me, for instance, just briefly, um, I'm using my story um, to help um, tell youth about the pitfalls of gang activity or running in gangs and, you know, um, hanging in the streets. And So when I tell them my story, they don't have to look at me and say, you know, well, I, I don't, I don't want to listen to that because that doesn't apply to me. Well, I was from where you're from. You know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. You had the same circumstances I had. So when I when I talk about my story, they can relate to it. Therefore, see the danger ahead. You know, because sometimes it, the youth have that tunnel vision where they can't see beyond themselves. And so that's my part and my contribution is to bring awareness and to help the youth navigate themselves out of um, those tough situations. I mean, I so appreciate that you're doing that. And I feel like, it, you know, that that for all the young men who get to hear your story and, and, and have their lives transformed. That's, that's such a blessing that, that you are being in the world. And so I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you said one of your focuses will be on iniquity. Um, can you elaborate on what that would look like? Sure. I mean, it starts at the, at the very beginning, you know, the, the infant mortality rate in Maryland is three times as high for black babies as white babies. So it starts with just even access to good prenatal care for moms so that kids have a healthy start, right? Then you look at early childhood, uh, the birth through five period. We, we have so much research that shows that getting Good, high-quality child care, early childhood education can help someone get on the right trajectory, help them arrive at kindergarten ready to learn. Uh, but we have huge disparities. Black and Latino folks, low-income folks have much less access to quality early childhood education. I think in the richest state, in the richest country that's ever existed on the face of the earth, we can afford to take care of our babies. And we should make sure that every family can have affordable, high-quality early childhood education, birth through five. Our K-12 system, we have huge disparities. I mean, you, you, know, you know the situation in, in Baltimore. There, there are kids who are literally already, they've been sent home from school because there's not enough air conditioning in their school building. And so it's too hot to be in school. And every winter you have right. teachers who are in the classroom with their students all with hats and gloves and coats because the heat is inadequate. Schools where you can't drink water from the water fountain because there's lead in the pipes. None of that is acceptable. We shouldn't have any of that exactly. in a society that cares about equity. So if we give everyone that strong foundation birth to five, a strong K-12 education, if we make sure a college is affordable, uh, whether that's community college or, um, or a four-year bachelor's degree or career training, post-secondary career training. If we make sure that that's affordable and accessible to people, we'll have a much better prepared um, workforce and a stronger economy, and we will address some of these underlying equity challenges. 
I tell uh, people all the time the reason why I didn't make it in school is because um, I can't, you can't go to school hungry. Um, you can't go to school with no clean clothes. You can't go to school with problems uh, in your home when your parents are drug addicted and concentrate on learning. And so the educators in there also have to look at these um, aspects of it and figure out what's going on in these children's lives outside of the classroom. So I'm so glad you spoke on that all the things that's going on in the schools that prevent the students and the kids from uh, developing properly. That's right. You know, there, this, this, um, uh, no, I was just going to say that the, the general assembly just passed a school funding uh, reform bill this last session that includes funding for a community schools coordinator in every school that has a significant number of, of students from low-income backgrounds. And the idea is the community schools coordinator will help connect students and their families to healthcare if they need it, to addiction treatment if parents need it, to housing assistance if they need it. Um, trying to acknowledge that in order for kids to be successful in school, we've got to make sure that, that um, that they're fed, they have stable housing, that they have health care, uh, that they have dental care, and we should be doing much more to make sure that those services can be made available through schools. First of all, yes, um, I agree with you completely. Does racism play a role in Maryland's tough on crime philosophy and long-standing policies, do you think? Absolutely. There's a, you know, a dog whistle politics where, you know, the, some of the politicians try to blame um, communities like Baltimore, try to blame those communities for the problems in the state and try to say, well, if we were just tougher, if we just had longer sentences, if we just built more prisons um, and it, and it's, and as they talk about it, they try and do it in a way that taps into people's fears and anxiety and pits communities against each other, including on, on, on racial lines. And, you know, when, when you see that happening, um, it, it takes a toll on our health as a society. You think about how we dealt with the crack epidemic versus how we're dealing now with the opioid epidemic. That when crack was um, being used uh, disproportionately by African-Americans, the response was, well, just put everybody in prison. When you see the opioid addiction hitting more white communities, now there's conversation about addiction treatment and recovery programs and that kind of disparity is tied to how people think about and react to racial differences. And we've really got to say we should want for every human being what we would want for our own child, for our own family member. If somebody's struggling with, with addiction, they need help, not incarceration. If somebody doesn't have access to a job and doesn't have access to housing, well, of course, that's going to put pressure on them. That's going to cause them to make uh, many times bad choices. Let's tackle that. Let's make sure people can get good, good education, good jobs, uh, access to housing, just as we would want for our own family members. This is 
conscious as well as unconscious bias. Um, I was telling somebody on the team recently that when they saw that I was traumatized, when they saw that my mother was on drugs and that we were neglected and she was not home with us and we were raising ourselves, that's when they intervene. If they know about it, they'll come and intervene. They'll take the family, break it apart, take the kids away. So at that moment, you become someone for them to save. But then somehow, when you become 18, mm-hmm. and you're still not treated for the traumas of the past when you was young, now you become someone who they want to incarcerate. So if you was never given any treatment or taken care of after you was traumatized as a child, is it any wonder you grow up without the proper uh, guidance around you and end up in the prison system. So that's just a uh, statement that I was thinking of, not something that you necessarily have to answer, but I was thinking we go from being someone that the state is saving to someone Mm -hmm. that the state looks at as a predator. That's Mm -hmm. crazy. That's right. That's right. Well, we need all of our our policymaking to be trauma-informed. We need to realize that unless you get to addressing those underlying traumas, you're not going to be able to help people get their lives on track. And that's true when folks are um, incarcerated. It's true when kids are struggling in school. We've, we've got to have strategies to get at that underlying trauma, and that's counseling and mental health services and mentors and supports. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be right back with my final question for Secretary King. Stay tuned, and don't forget to tell somebody else to listen in when you hear it first for the first time. Be back. Hey, everybody. Um, I just wanted to say, go to my website, Grant Parole to Philip, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-O-L-E-T-O-P-H-I-L-L-I-P.com. And scroll down, you'll see a link to donate for my legal fees as I'm in need of a criminal attorney. Uh, I also have another link to donate to my GoFundMe for mental health expenses. Thank everybody for your support and thank everybody for the love they've been showing me. I appreciate it. And um, God willing, you know, it'll make a difference and I'll be home soon. All right. Um, So that brings me back after a little break. Back with Secretary King and my final question for him. I was thinking about one that uh, is off topic and ain't got nothing to do with it after I asked this one. It's got something to do with whether or not him and Obama ever played basketball and hooped together while he was there, you know. But I'll ask him that after this last question. Um, I wanted to ask you, could you tell us something more about Strong Future Maryland, your organization that you founded? Yeah. So, you know, I started Strong Future Maryland really because I could see the disparate impact that COVID was having and that low-income communities, communities of color were bearing the brunt of COVID, not just the health impact and disproportionate sickness and hospitalization and death, but also the economic impact. Folks losing jobs, losing their homes, uh, losing income. And I wanted to make the argument that it's not just good enough 
to have a recovery from COVID that gets us back to how things were in February 2020, because we already had incredible inequities in February 2020 that COVID made worse. And so to me, the recovery had to be much more about building a stronger, more just future in Maryland. And that meant uh, tackling inequities in education, inequities in access to housing, inequities in access to um, creating small business, inequities in environmental policy where pollution disproportionately affects uh, low-income communities and communities of color. So Strong Future Maryland works with the General Assembly to try to advance policies that will create more justice, protecting people from evictions, worker protections, so that um, people uh, can get uh, fair treatment and good benefits in the workplace, uh, advocating for paid family leave so that folks can take time off when they have a new baby or a family member who's sick. So we last session, last legislative session, we testified on, on more than 60 bills. Uh, about 23 of them became law. And the idea is to keep fighting for laws that will make our state more just, more equitable, and ultimately um, a better place to live. Uh, thank you, um, Secretary King, man. You, uh, you did a great job, man. I like the uh, answers that you gave, and I'm sure a lot of other Marylanders, man, are listening in. They're going to feel the same way. Um, I know you're busy, probably got to run, but I did have a uh, little bonus question on your way out, man, of uh, your time in the White House with President Obama, man. You got to let us know about that. How was that, man, and uh, what was that experience like? You know, it was it was fantastic, and, and the thing about President Obama and Mrs. Obama is they care so deeply about education and about young people. They were always very eager to be involved in the work that we were doing at the education department. One of the things I worked on with the president was an initiative called My Brother's Keeper that was about trying to improve outcomes for boys and young men of color. And some of the work we did through that effort around mentoring, around uh, summer jobs programs, about just trying to help young people be successful. That, that was some of the most satisfying work that I got to be involved in during the administration. The other thing is that they're, they just, despite being huge celebrities, they've stayed regular people. You know, President and I would often talk about our daughters. Uh, we both have two daughters. We talk about parenting, uh, talk about music. Like they just stayed, they stayed regular people despite all the fame. Well, thank you so much, like I said, for coming and um, talking with us and sharing your insights. Um, yeah, man, um, I look forward to what goes down and hopefully in the future we can work together on some things. And Absolutely. Changes for our state um, that's going to put us in a better place going forward. If anybody wants to support you, if anybody wants to follow you, if anybody wants to contribute or donate to your campaign, how would they be able to do that? Oh, thank you for asking that. So uh, our website is johnkingforgovernor.com, johnkingforgovernor.com, uh, or they can follow us on Twitter, at John B. King. Uh, but I'd love for folks to follow the campaign, sign up for our email list, uh, and get involved.
Absolutely. You already said it. And we're going to make sure we put it out there. Check him out, y'all, and see what he's talking about. Take care and tune in for the wall behind and beyond.